You're listening to Marcus Sahaba Online Radio Podcast. Alhamdulillah, when it comes uh, to that segment, uh, we all are ready for takeoff. And Ibrahim Ba is looking good there. He's looking, mashallah. Ibrahim Ba, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. And uh, tell me, how are you doing this fine, beautiful evening? Wa alaikum salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh, brother Shafat and our listeners out there to Radio Marcus Sahaba. Alhamdulillah, I'm top of the world this evening. Great to have you, Bramba. You know, when you're firing on all cylinders, and, and then we know it's going to be a great show, inshallah. And uh, talking about a great show, uh, you know, a lot of uh, things are happening around us. Uh, uh, we notice that airports, are, I mean, naturally, the airports have to be closed into Turkey. Uh, but uh, yeah, goods are coming in. So there may be some movement somewhere. Is the harbors are working? Or are the, any inside information, Bramba? Well, look, uh, the thing is. Uh the uh, earthquake uh, epicenter was uh, closer uh, to uh, the town of Gaziantep, that's uh, further uh, east, right? And it's not anywhere near. Uh, and Talia and all those places. So, uh, yeah, the flights are operating. It's just that uh, that one airport that is uh, close in close proximity uh, to uh, to the uh, actual uh, epicenter that has been closed simply because of the fact that they are just reserving that uh, for the uh, entry and exit of uh, uh, planes that are carrying uh, relief effort. And uh, of course, uh, all the material and equipment as well as the uh, many teams that have responded from uh, across uh, the uh, globe uh, to the uh, airport at Adana. So it is closed until further notice for ordinary passenger flights as such because the reason that with such devastation and so much work to be done is the last thing they want is more and more people coming in there that are coming a, either on business or to visit or whatever the case may be. So they controlling the ingress of people from outside and just uh, restricting it uh, to essential uh, personnel that need to be there to help with relief efforts. Yeah, just for that, Ibrahim, but then, you know, uh, you being a travel agent, so you've been to the Holy Lands on many, many, many tours and uh, many pilgrims you have taken and uh, your name has stood the test of time. But uh, yeah, we have uh, six Cape Town travel agencies uh, lose their Hajj accreditation, uh, Ibrahim, but what's going on? Uh, well, look, uh, I feel for those uh, six, uh, whoever they might be, uh, the fact that uh, they rely on this business in the sense that they have been or, or are operators in the uh, pilgrim market, a, either for Umrah and Hajj. Now, in order for you to be uh, recognized as one of those who can uh, sell or promote uh, Hajj packages, the thing is uh, you've got to meet certain criteria that have been set out by the South African Hajj and Umrah Council, Sahuk for short, I'm sure most of our listeners know who they are. And uh, I think uh, it is uh, not any slight on these agents at all. I would think that basically, you know, and I stand to correction on this, not having all the information from the six of them, that uh, these agents for some reason or the other were either delayed or submitted their applications for 2023 uh, once the deadline had passed. And uh, I think they took their dispute up with Sahuk in the, and uh, they agreed to meet to discuss, uh, you know, the circumstances. 
further to that, it went to court, the Western Cape High Court, and they applied for an order, these six agents, to compel South to conclude their pending appeal lodged against it and uh, against the decision to decline their accredi accreditation applications. And uh, unfortunately for them, uh, the uh, permission was declined, so they are unable to uh, sell Hajj packages this year. And uh, it uh, just leaves a total of seven uh, agents who are approved in uh, South Africa that will be able to, to promote and sell uh, Hajj packages. And of course, uh, I would think uh, Umrah, Umrah packages as well. And uh, this year, South Africa has been granted a Hajj quota of 2,500 pilgrims. And uh, of course, as always, uh, Sahuk has requested additional numbers, but uh, at this stage, and uh, no additional quota was granted. And uh, Sahuk stated that Hujaj had until 6.30 p.m. on February 24th, that's just, what, 10 days away, to uh, select an accredited Hajj operator because they will not be able to uh, extend deadlines, obviously, because of the contracts uh, and uh, conditions that were set down by the their counterparts in the Hajj and Umrah uh, ministry in Saudi Arabia. And uh, contrary to popular belief, you know, everyone thinks there's a fortune to be made. And uh, uh, even here it's stated that uh, Hajj and Umrah packages are lucrative for travel agents. I think they talk out the back of their head when they, when they do something like that, whoever it was, simply because of the fact that uh, in this day and age, everyone can go online and look at the prices and decide for themselves what kind of packages they want. The fact that you have to go through an accredited operator here in South Africa means that you will be paying for their services, a, either holding your hand and taking you across or whatever else, making all your arrangements, transfers and and ziarats uh, and tours or whatever that might be going on there. And uh, once the uh, survey of the different packages and offer for Ramadan, Umrah, that's just around the corner in March, April, uh, from lowest to the highest, depending on your nearness to the haram and the uh, quality of uh, accommodation, et cetera, and whether you're taking it with or without food and all the rest of it, ranges from about 35 to 63,000 on the top, top end, right? So that is something to think about. And of course, uh, as we all know, those who are familiar with the lay of the land in Makkah, uh, the majority of the hotels near the Haram are now way out of the reach of most uh, South African pilgrims. It's only the uber rich that come from Middle East or other uh, very affluent destinations that can afford all that. And uh, the further away you go, of course, the prices get cheaper, but that means you're going to have to walk to the Haram and walk back every time you want to go to the uh, Haram, or you're going to go there maybe from Asar and you come out after Isha. But then again, of course, during Ramadan, it's a question of breaking your fast. So all those things come into play. But uh, what uh, is of uh, note is that uh, there was uh, a lawyer and also a city councillor, mind you, uh, who called for the appointment of an ombudsman, uh, claiming that it, uh, an, an independent entity should be uh, able to ensure a neutral position and handle these complaints fairly and justly. I'm not saying that Sahuk uh, isn't, but the thing is them being judge, jury and executioner, the thing is it's up to them as to a, a, whether they're saying yay or nay, 
So it's always good to have an objective uh, sort of body or ombudsman sitting in the middle just to see the uh, pros and cons and decide and, and, and judge fairly. So that's the story over there. So again, there's just a choice of seven uh, registered agents and uh, 2,500, you can do the mass and see on average how many uh, each of these agents will be able to, to take. That doesn't necessarily mean that uh, they will get a fair share. It all depends on uh, the kind of packages that uh, different agencies are promoting and what's your taste and what's your budget and what can you or cannot afford and that's where the business will go to. But uh, talking about the lucrative nature of it, the thing is you've got to pay through your nose for all the services on that side, especially for the Hajj. It's all very, very regulated and and the prices are what they are. And the thing is, uh, what I don't understand is why they keep taking a dig at travel agents that are doing this good work. And I mean, everyone is, is in business to turn a profit, otherwise they'll be foolish just to work at a loss. So even if they're adding on 10% or 15, even 20% for all the trouble that they've got, I mean, they've got overheads, they've got staff, they've got uh, expenses to go over there and service uh, the needs of the Hajis. Uh, so I don't understand why they keep bringing this thing up and uh, much to my, what's the name, disdain, of course. Thank you. A lot of uh, uh, good points, uh, Ibrahim Ba. And I was thinking aloud, you know, uh, if you're a travel agent, uh, uh, do you have to uh, give a guarantee uh, maybe, you know, in, in, in your time uh, to the Saudi authorities or who do you give the guarantee that, you know, I'm a reputable travel agency and uh, uh, do you have to show a very healthy bank account? Uh, no, I think the, the main criteria, A, firstly, the thing is regulated on the side by Sahuk. They have their own criteria. And you've got to be an IATA travel agent. You've got to have a clean bill of health. Your balance sheet's got to be in order, et cetera, et cetera. And you should not have any sort of uh, blacklisting or bad reputation in the kingdom for them to consider your application valid and uh, give you the opportunity of registering as such. No, there isn't the need to be, uh, to the best of my knowledge, of course, uh, things change from time to time. There is no need to put down any uh, sort of financial or other guarantee. The fact that uh, you are a bona, bona fide travel agent in your country of origin that has been uh, uh, approved of and accredited by Sahuk uh, is, uh, is uh, what's the name, proof enough that you are good for what you are selling and what you are going to be doing and delivering. And uh, most of the seven agents that are there are easily recognizable and they have been in the business for some time. So I think uh, that our hujjahs are in relatively safe hands insofar as uh, who is operating the hatch packages. And uh, the fact that uh, Sahuk has uh, credited them means that uh, there shouldn't be, you know, God forbid, any problems insofar as them getting the services that they paid for on the other side. Of course, Hajj being Hajj, the thing is, uh, you know, the permutations are endless. Your bus could get lost. You might not reach Arafat. Uh, you know, your tents might be occupied in Mina by some other nationality or things like that. So all these things are par for the course. So uh, things can happen. And of course, sometimes uh, the packages that you pay for the five days are not necessarily what gets delivered on the day by whichever uh, body or muasas or whatever that is providing those services. And of course, at the end of the day, they just know the agent that uh, they paid and they're not interested in anything else. And this is where, unfortunately, a lot of flack is taken by the agent, even though it may not necessarily be their fault that uh, some of the services that, that uh, were promised and paid for were not delivered on the day. 
Yeah, Ibrahim, but you know, whilst you're talking, I was thinking about, uh, you know, the people of Hajj and uh, you are the uh, tour operator and uh, one of your, your, your clients uh, get arrested. What can they get arrested for uh, during the period of Hajj and all that? And I know when you get arrested there, they lock you and they throw the keys away. <laughs> yeah, it could be just anything, eh, from, uh, you know, not paying your your, your way, uh, uh, either getting caught with drugs or smoking the green stuff or a whole host of things. But, uh, you know, just uh, saying things or behaving in a disorderly manner or, you know, blaspheming or talking against the government of the day and things like that. It could be just any one of those things. And, uh yeah, it is a challenge, and uh, invariably, the thing is, the agent who has brought you across uh, uh, at the behest of the family members who are still there in the hotel uh, will urge the agent to go and, uh, you know, make representations for the release, whether it's uh, paying a fine or getting him off, you know, with some uh, uh, evidence that proves that he wasn't necessarily contravening any particular law or the other. And uh, yeah, same thing goes if uh, someone falls ill or if someone unfortunately passes away or over there, it becomes uh, your responsibility as the agents to work together with the authorities and of course uh, the family members, the surviving family members uh, to uh, resolve the issue one way or the other. And uh, you know, everything at that time of the season, especially during the Hajj, reaching the last say, five days or something before Mina, it can be chaotic, you know, the, the Mecca is bursting at the seams and uh, the thing is, uh, you've got to literally walk everywhere because uh, jumping in the cab is not going to be the answer. You could sit for hours in one place and not move. So it is challenging and the thing is, I think uh, uh, many people, you know, that uh, espouse negative sentiment towards the agent don't necessarily understand, you know, the uh, the hurdles and the challenges that they want to face insofar as uh, making sure to the best of their ability, you know, that uh, everyone is well taken care of and as comfortable as could possibly be in the circumstances. Ibrahim, I'm going to share a story with you because I remember I was, uh, you know, with that then, uh, it was in 89-90, I was uh, the editor of the Al-Burhan and, you know, they, I remember an individual came in and he was crying. He was crying. He said, you know what, uh, they've arrested uh, my brother and, you know, we have come back and they still wouldn't release him and all that. And that was looking at him. So I wanted to know what it's all about. Why was he arrested? And this and that. After a long story, and that said, okay, don't worry, brother. I'll get him released. Guess what, Ibrahim? Yeah. that picks the phone. And made what, call. Five minutes. Yeah. Like I was released. Can you believe it? <laughs> the man. The yeah, man had a direct link. You know, at the end of the day, yeah. They're ready. They loved him there. But now, it's a, a 360. You can't do dawah. You can't talk religion no, You there. can't do anything. Yeah. Then. No, no. The, you do, as soon as they, you know, they know you're talking religion, they they yeah. put you in. I mean, you know, how many if, imams? If they've got the temerity to lock up the uh, the uh, heads of the... Uh, the imams, um, yeah. Yeah, the imams that are leading the congregation. My God, what's left? Just because he's speaking... In accordance with the with the you know the tenets of Islam, I mean, what kind of nonsense is this that we have to put up with, you know? But the thing is, at the end of the day, I always used to give, uh, I always used to give, uh, you know, my uh, our pilgrims advice that if you're going there for Hajj, focus on what you went there for, Umrah, and leave all the politics and everything else out of the way. You can observe, you can listen, and everything, but uh, 
keep your comments to yourself until such time that you are clear of the area and then you can say what you want. And I yeah. say, I mean the country. Yeah, I mean, uh, those those spies uh, that are spying for the government. They, oh, everywhere, yeah. and, and those are all CIA trained. Huh? Make no mistake. They might wow. Have, make, no, make no mistake. And I also believe uh, Mossad uh, plays a, uh, quite a huge yeah. role in security yeah. there too. They yeah. Do. Yeah, we won't, uh, Ibrahim Bayana won't get too deep into that, people. Yeah. They, we know they're listening to. <laughs> anyway, Ibrahim Bayana, uh, angry crowd turned on Polish uh, tourists after he's climbed, he, he, he climbed a sacred Mexican temple. We know the Aztecs and so forth. So talk to me about that, Ibrahim Bayana. Yeah, this uh, hapless character, Polish tourist, basically, uh, he caused a whole lot of unpleasant scenes at one of these temples. It actually is called the Sacred El Castillo, uh, Mayan Pyramid. Now, for anyone who knows anything about uh, my Mayan uh, or Aztec architecture, it's all like step sort of pyramids where you could literally climb the stairs right to the top. And uh, this uh, poor guy, I don't know, I don't think he did it just for show or for the heck of it. But I think, you know, looking at the Twitter uh, feeds on that, uh, I think he was just uh, naive in the sense that a, maybe he didn't read or understood or whether there wasn't enough sign or security to tell him he's not supposed to do that. And uh, to his credit, he had taken off his, uh, his shoes or his sandals, holding it in his hand, and he was climbing up maybe to get a better view from the top to see what it all looked like from the top there when the priests were in the heyday. And, uh, of course, uh, the security saw it uh, eventually and they escorted him back down. And unfortunately for him, uh, the uh, the uh, locals took umbrage at that and uh, they literally attacked him. They were booing and yelling and shouting and shoving him around. And one even took a big stick and hit him on the back of the head. And uh, whilst that was uncalled for, the thing is such is uh, the passion and thing that uh, go insofar as religious and other beliefs. So uh, that's what happened over there. And uh, I think... Uh, uh, in view of that, uh, I think maybe the security was lax or maybe, maybe there was a shortage of signage. Maybe he didn't read English or any of the other languages that they normally put it in, being Polish. And uh, it was unfortunate, of course, and I, I think uh, that would go against him having to come back ever to that destination. So uh, that's what went down there. And uh, I think uh, maybe they should uh, cordon off the area in my estimation, to prevent uh, such a recurrence, not to have, uh, offend the beliefs of the locals and uh, to ensure that nobody uh, gets to, you know, or desires to climb those steps up to the top. So be careful when you go to uh, foreign lands, get to know what uh, their rules and uh, regulations are. Well, that brings us to our next topic. Uh, the new old rules of travel, mind your manners. Hmm. <laughs> What man is they talking about here, Ibrahim Ba? Yeah, well, basically being a responsible traveler, you know. And, uh, of course, uh, these days everything is going green, you know, in the green madness that is just basically another farce, right, in my opinion, that uh, you mustn't use plastic and you mustn't do this and that. But uh, basically I think there is uh, maybe a handful of uh, uh, maybe about half a dozen or so things that one can do. And... Uh, you know, to be a responsible traveler and uh, enjoy uh, your trip to whichever destination that you choose to go to. Uh, I think the first one is, uh, if you can, 
uh, avoid traveling during the busy season. I know you'll tell me that's crazy, but uh, the popular spots uh, at the time are super peak and uh, full of crowds. So if you are going to want to go to an attraction or something, chances are you'll be standing in a queue. So uh, if you can uh, go during a, either the shoulder season, which is not quite peak going on to low, or the low season when things are cheaper and less crowded, and uh, you can uh, enjoy the uh, experience uh, much better. And uh, of course, you know, everyone wants to go to the Louvre to watch Mona Lisa from time to time or go down the stunning uh, Amalfi Coast in Italy in summer. But uh, it's not the best of times. Trust me, I've been there both on and off season and the experiences are totally different. Uh, another one is don't uh, overextend your finances, meaning don't go into debt just to travel. And being a responsible traveler, it's all about how you treat uh, others, including how you treat yourself and uh, protect yourself, you know, financially and of course your mental well-being by budgeting and, and staying within that budget as far as possible. Otherwise, there's many a time that people don't have the money and they come and they book a ticket and uh, accommodation and all, all on credit cards. And by the time they come back home, the bills are waiting. And of course, they get into trouble because they cannot uh, afford to meet the payments. Then they go into uh, paying minimum balances and, of course, horrendous interest, 21% upwards. And, you know, there's only one way that goes. Uh, of course, again, coming back to this green agenda, they suggest that uh, you must swap cars for planes or for walks, bikes, trains and buses and the like. And uh, try and uh, go uh, closer to home for trips like uh, travel domestically, meaning that uh, if you are traveling shorter distances, chances are you'll be using less fuel and uh, you know, polluting the atmosphere less. And uh, also suggestions of going on camping, biking and other trips or taking the train where you can sleep overnight and save some money on accommodation at the same time. Uh, of course, uh, they would like you to spend money with local smaller businesses, the mom and pop shops and things like that, living in um, B&Bs and things like that instead of the uh, international hotel chains. And uh, trying to support the local uh, artists and craftspeople, neighborhood restaurants, uh, independent tour guides and things like that. Uh, also, one should always uh, carry small denominations of uh, local currency wherever you're going to so that you could tip the guys because a lot of them rely on those tips, the people that uh, a, either carry your bags up to your room and things like that. Uh, so it is uh, the norm really to uh, tip these people. But uh, that is being challenged now as the world drifts into the cashless society. Uh, you know, it, it's not always easy to to have something on hand to give them. I mean, where are you going to even get, give your credit card there and try and get some cash unless you have to go to an ATM. And of course, that in a foreign land comes with its own challenges. And uh, of course, uh, this is something that is of importance, especially in which destination you go. Uh, taking photographs, you know, in these days with selfies and other, the fact that you're, 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 the camera on your phone is more sophisticated than many cameras. Uh, you can still take travel photos, but I think uh, it's uh, it's it's right it's the right thing to do and uh, to respect local cultures, you know, and ask permission to shoot a stranger's photos before you actually do it. 
So the next time you you pick up a camera or your phone and sing, just uh, chat with them first, and chances are you'll get a more compelling and a more, how shall I say, a nicer uh, travel photo and uh, a more memorable experience. Yes, Brahma, and as you said, uh, it could be a memorable experience. Mm. And you know, yesterday many people went there, and today uh, people, I mean, the phone gets so uh, crowded with the composites too, and many other things. You just have to go on delete mode. That too takes you your whole day, so you don't even have time to delete things on your phone too. It's a, it's a funny, funny world that we live in. But uh, talking about India now, Ibrahimba, best places. Yes, for... now we always seem to gravitate to India. The last yeah, time because uh, in India. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they reckon they got a solo travel. And I know uh, anyone that goes solo in India, you're looking for trouble. But uh, <laughs> I wonder what you're going to tell us, Ibrahim. Ba? Well, look, it's a question of uh, the, the pushing the solo tra uh, travel uh, angle right now. Not just them, I think a lot of them, because uh, look, given the flexibility and uh, technology where it is today, the thing is you don't have to wait until you get a group or your partner that's busy working and cannot get leave at the same time. So I think that is on the increase and in the fact that uh, more women are traveling independently. So there is that niche market that people are looking to, uh, how shall I say, capitalize on. And uh, of course, it's a question of uh, what do you want to do and where you want to go in India. Right. Uh, I, a lot of people I know go there to discover themselves. You know, I don't know what that's supposed to mean. More so with spiritual re re rejuvenation. And of course, there's lots of adventurous uh, adventure to be had there in uh, in India. So uh, it's a question of, uh, hey, do you wait for somebody else or do you go on your own? So if it's solo traveling is what you are all about, uh, then I think you can get up and go whenever you feel like uh, you are not enslaved to the whims and fancies of a fellow travelers or group members and your planning is largely uh, up to you. You know, you can decide to stay in bed for the whole morning if you feel like it and don't have to run straight down to breakfast and out there and climb on the coach and go to the next stop. And that's the beauty of solo travel where, you know, you call the shots. Now, there's quite a few uh, uh, destinations uh, within India, a lot of them are underrated and uh, of course it's a question of uh, what you'd like to do over there. I'm just going to run through very quickly, I'm sure time is against us, uh, you know, and there are quite a few here. Uh, the first one up is uh, Jibi in Tirtan and that's a remote area of uh, Himachal uh, Pradesh. And uh, the nice thing about it, it hasn't been commercialized and is surrounded by and natural beauty and uh, the location is worth visiting if you're one of those uh, people that love nature, uh, thick pine trees, uh, plentiful uh, freshwater lakes and of course spotless temples if you are culture vulture and after religion and things like that. And uh, they say you won't want to leave once you've come there because the destination is quite enchanted and it will leave a lasting impression on you. And uh, of course, like we sometimes do on the breakfast show, is in the midst of nature, you can sip on a cup of chai while talking to the uh, locals and enjoying the fresh uh, air and listening to the birds chirping. Uh, Hampi, that's in Karnataka, is a UNESCO World Heritage Site, is a must-see as well. And uh, you can enjoy a lot of uh, 
art and history over here. And uh, would you believe there's more than 500 monuments uh, scattered all over the uh, hills over here, and all just a few kilometers apart in a very peaceful setting. And uh, this was the political and royal center for the uh, various empires, be it Hindu, uh, Muslim, and uh, its attractiveness is enhanced by the river Tangabhadra, which features uh, coracle boats. In, in, just to inform you, coracle boats are these small little boats, either round or rectangular or something that people used to row around in these placid waters. Uh, Kasol, also in Himachal Pradesh, uh, this is for those trekkers and uh, adventure and adrenaline junkies. And uh, it's on the banks of, uh, it's a tiny settlement on the bank of the Parvati River. And it's perfect for fishing and is stocked with trout. And of course, you'll need to get a permit from the forestry department. And a fantastic location for water sports like uh, whitewater rafting and the like. Uh, then we move on to Varkala in Kerala, a peaceful cliff overlooking the Arabian Sea. And uh, nice beaches around there and of course uh, some temples sites that you want to see and uh, uh, proliferation of uh, ayurvedic spas and uh, yeah, herbal and other natural sort of treatments uh, shillong uh, we're looking at meghalaya the capital city and is surrounded by again pine trees because of the location high up in the mountains uh, its names come from the Shillong Peak Idol, Lei Shillong. That was the name of their idol over there. And it's uh, up at a height of uh, almost 1,500 meters. And it uh, offers some relief from the heat. And uh, again, beautiful uh, uh, scenery and uh, nice small villages and customs that uh, hark back to yesteryear. And pleasant all round. Uh, so uh, it is known also the Scotland of the East, mind you, this location where it gets uh, occasional drizzles and a cooling soft wind. Uh, Rishikesh uh, in Uttarakhand, that's a lovely place. And it's known as the yoga capital of the world. I've been there personally and a uh, lovely place. Uh, the Ganges, of course, flows through there. and. Uh, for once, because it's so high up, the waters are crystal clear. If you look down, you'll see turquoise waters like you would in Switzerland or somewhere else before it goes further downstream and gets polluted. And uh, just about everywhere you look, you'll find adventure sports, uh, temples, and of course, uh, adventure activities, and of course, uh, yogis and yoga schools and the like, a lot of which, uh, you know, foreigners come and they stay for weeks on end to practice and train yoga and go back and become practitioners in their own countries ultimately. And uh, this is very a very popular uh, destination in India. And Udaipur in Rajasthan basically sits on the lake over there, Lake Udaipur. And it's known as a city of lakes purely because of the uh, many lakes that are surrounding the city. And uh, it has the stunning Aravali Valley hills that surround it on all sides, lots of forts and things, but uh, uh, step back in time and uh, beautiful, beautiful hotels on the lake and surrounding the lake. And uh, one can take a gondola ride uh, on the on the lake, very beautiful place. And then we've got uh, Mahabalipuram, 
which is in Tamil Nadu, Tamil Nadu, and not far from uh, Chennai. Uh, not far from there, of course, is also Kanchipuram, and uh, very much a small temple town, and uh, was a major seaport during the reign of the Pallavas. It's also a World Heritage Site, and a uh, lot of rock-cut temples here to be seen. And finally, there's uh, what used to be Pondi Cherry, now Puducherry, that is uh, near Goa, and uh, on the east coast, of course, of the subcontinent. And uh, it harkens back to when the French had uh, originally arrived there, and a lot of uh, French influence is still evident over there in its uh, cuisine. Uh, you know, you can have a genuine gourmet experience. And uh, it's something like that has been preserved, you know, the colonialist uh, sort of atmosphere. And of course, there are temples and synagogues and things of sort of here, if you need to rekindle your spirituality. So uh, those are the uh, main ones that uh, appeal, according to surveys, to the solar travelers, uh, Brother Shafat. It's more, it's for, more the for the Western, Western market, market. and uh, we, yeah, wherever we go, we give the azan there and we read our namaz. We don't need uh, uh, this rishi and that rishi to do all, all those things for us. But Ibrahim, by absolutely, mashallah, you know, cool, calm, collected, well delivered. Your parting words uh, this evening? Uh, yeah, just for our listeners out there, it is said that prosperity lies in contentment, safety in solitude, freedom in absence of desire, and fruition in patience. Let me leave you all with that and bid all of you all uh, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh to you, Brother Shafat, firstly, for making it possible and giving me the opportunity. And for our listeners out there, I hope that we added some value and that you derived some benefit from what was shared. Well, your hikmah, your wisdom and uh, your, you know, what uh, input is invaluable. It cannot be. I mean, no money can even uh, pay you for what you deliver, Ibrahim Ba. Wa alaikum salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Time for us to go, uh, yeah, time for us to end up the show. And I want to thank uh, Lucalo for doing brilliant engineering as usual. Uh, keep it locked into Marcus uh, Sahaba for beautiful programming. Uh, from the team and I, till we meet you again, we bid you, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.